All right. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for bearing with us for a few minutes. Um, and most importantly, welcome to the first weekend here of the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name's Steve Brusati. I'm a paleontologist here at the University of Edinburgh and an occasional science writer. Uh, and it's my uh, real pleasure and, today... Uh, this is his you know, book, by the way. And <laughs> see, it was... I'm, I'm a decent marketer. Uh, <laughs> and we'll get to this book, though. This is why we're really here. And it is, it's a, a really a great privilege here for this event, uh, sponsored by the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, to have here uh, Sir Venki Ramakrishnan. And, and, and so let's welcome him. Now, I won't continue to call you sir, if that's okay. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'd rather you hadn't the first time. But yeah. <laughs> so I became a British citizen earlier this year, and I still am not quite sure on the protocol. Um, so Venki's uh, published this book, which is a, a really nice book. It's a, it's a memoir, uh, but it's also a book about how science works, and that's what we really want to talk about uh, here today. So I could go on and on about the accolades, Nobel Prize winner, president of the Royal Society. Both of those very impressive, obviously. And I must say, the latter one is even more impressive to me because I looked up the numbers yesterday, and it seems like there's maybe about 950 Nobel Prize winners over the last 100 years, but there's only been about 60 presidents of the Royal Society. But going back to the 1600s, two people like Isaac Newton. So, and it's a very important position for science here in Britain and internationally. So I'm going to start off with a bit of a softball question. That's all right. Now, you, you write here in, in the book that uh, only a small fraction of scientists even come into personal contact with Nobel laureates. And that's true. I think this is maybe the second or third time I've met a laureate. And so you're often treated as these mythical creatures, I believe. So the question you probably get all the time, but I think everybody wants to know, what's it like to have a Nobel Prize hanging in your, <laughs> in your office? Well, uh, I think the best explanation of that is a video that's available on the web of Francis Crick talking about the Nobel Prize. And, you know, the, the, the thing, and I go, go into this in the book, the thing is that the public thinks of the Nobel as one thing. You know, they think oh, if you have a Nobel, you must be some sort of genius, or you must, you know, be incredibly great scientist, etc. And I say in the book that um, it's, it's a bit like Shakespeare described it in Twelfth Night, I believe, which is, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them, you know. And there's many Nobel laureates who are just not even very smart, you know. <laughs> But they happen to, they all, the one thing they have in common is they all contributed to making some important advance, you know, either an important discovery or an important invention. But it doesn't mean that they're personally smart. And even if they are, it doesn't mean they know anything outside their field. You know, so if you're a molecular biologist and you get asked about climate change or you know, biodiversity or something like that, you know, you, you, don't, you really are dinosaurs, you know. Uh, <laughs> the fact is, you wouldn't know anything, you know, and you would know nothing more than the average uh, person on the street. So, what happens though is that when you get the Nobel Prize, there's another thing that I describe in the book called the Matthew Effect. This is after, I'm not 
particularly religious, but this is Matthew chapter 13, verse 12, which is, to him who hath, more shall be given, and he shall have even more abundance. And from him who hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath, which seems rather cruel to me, you know, sort of a, an exercise in increasing inequality. But uh, that's what happens. You get the Nobel Prize, and then all of a sudden all these learned societies want to make you their members of their society. Uh, other people want to give you other awards. Uh, not any big science awards. Once you have the Nobel, nobody wants to give you a big science award. That's the figure you already have one. Uh, but, but then... Uh, the people started electing you, and so, you know, suddenly somebody called me up and asked if I wanted to be president of the Royal Society. And I say somewhat, uh, perhaps a bit cynically in the book, that if I hadn't had the Nobel Prize, nobody at the Royal Society would have even thought of me for two seconds. It's not like they thought, oh, this guy's doing great ribosome work in Cambridge. Let's have him as our president. You know, it's because of the Nobel that they thought of me as a, a serious possibility. And so you do get that, and it, it, it can be a big distraction. And uh, I, I talk about two kinds of diseases. We'll come to the first disease later in the book, uh, talk, perhaps. But the second disease is something I call post-nobilitis. And there's a pre-nobilitis, which we'll talk about later. But the post-nobilitis is, you know, often Nobel Prizes are given to people who are long past their prime. They've done their best work 10 or 20 years earlier. They've sort of, de you know, declined. They're coasting along. Sometimes they're retired. And they suddenly are thrust into the limelight. And uh, initially, they sort of act with a little bemusement. But, but being human, it often goes to their head. And suddenly, they start pontificating about all sorts of things. They, go traveling around, giving talks, go to book festivals, you know, things like that. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, that's a, that's a disease called post-nobilitis. And you have to be very, very uh, bloody-minded to ignore all that hype and think about why you went into science and carry on doing science. That's a, that's, that takes quite a lot of determination. And I've tried to do that. And I was successful until I became president of the Royal Society but you could argue there I'm using my credibility for doing kind of science for the public good in a sort of larger sense. So that's another use. You could use your Nobel as to give you credibility to do uh, good things for science. Mm -hmm. We'll get to the post Sorry, a long-winded answer. <laughs> yeah. But let's talk a little bit about the pre-Nobel time. Yeah. Uh, you can read all about Benke's background in his book, but briefly, born in India, studied physics, moved to the U.S., became a biologist, and then has uh, run now many successful labs in molecular biology, now at the Laboratory for Molecular Biology in Cambridge, which is one of those pantheons of science. All the details are here, and I'm sure I sh we'll... I should say one thing, though. It's not an autobiography, okay? It's a memoir of a race, and I provide enough context to sort of about me to... to you know, to engage you in a story of the race, but it doesn't talk about my hobbies and childhood and parents and so on. No, it's, it's actually not <laughs> self-indulgent at all, unlike uh, so many memoirs. So um, let's talk about 
what the work you did to win the Nobel Prize. You deciphered the, stru the structure of the ribosome. Yeah. I think for many of us, even me, you're absolutely right. Scientists, we know very little outside of our fields. I can barely remember back to uh, high school biology. So you have some slides about the ribosome. I do have ribosome. some slides. And yeah, so this is the first slide. So, so I want to talk, first of all, if you ask people, do you know what genes are? Everybody will nod. They say, yeah. There are these things that give us our traits and, you know, we pass them on to our children, we inherit them from our parents, and, you know, you can have good or bad genes and so on. And, but if you really probe them further, they, they don't actually know what genes are, okay? So I'm going to tell you what genes are and why you need something to read genes. So, so this just to, first of all, to show you that different organisms have different numbers of genes. So um, let's see if this works. So here, for example, is a bacterium. It has about 2,000 genes. This is yeast, which has about 6,000 genes. There's a worm with about 20,000 genes. This is a weed, uh, and it's got about 25,000 genes. And here we are, and this actually needs to be revised downwards. So we actually only have about 20 to 25,000 genes. So. It's a little humbling, first of all, that we have the same number of genes as a worm or a weed, okay? And this is because evolution doesn't really care about intelligence and so on. It only cares about survivability. And, and so that's the numbers of genes. Now, the question is, what are all these genes? And it turns out most genes, not all, but nearly all genes, code, contain information for how to make proteins. And then you might ask, well, why is that important? Why is that so important? Why do we need thousands of genes to make proteins? Because here again, if you ask the average person in the street, if you go down George Street and ask people what, what's protein, they'll say it's that thing you need to eat to be you know, strong. And so it's something somehow vaguely connected with muscle in people's mind. And muscle actually has many different types of protein in order to allow it to contract and function. But basically, this doesn't seem to, ah, there we go. So basically what proteins are, are long chains uh, of building blocks called amino acids, which come in different shapes. So you can see here, this is like a ring. There's a ring with a little extra thing attached. This is a long one. This is a short one and so on. So you can see the different sizes, different shapes. They have different chemical properties. And there are about 20 of these. And so you can think of proteins as sentences made using a 20-letter alphabet. In each, each protein is a different sentence, if you like, okay? So that's each protein is a different polymer with a different order of these amino acids, which I've shown as, as simple letters here. Now, the miracle is that if you make a polymer, a protein polymer, with a particular order of the amino acids, the order of the amino acids has the information to allow the protein chain to fold up into a particular shape, okay? Think how amazing this is. It's as if, you know, I was given several blank strips of paper, and on each strip of paper I wrote down a different sentence. And depending on what sentence I wrote, uh, the, the piece of paper would automatically fold itself up into a completely new, unique shape, depending on the sentence. That's how amazing it is. And the information is all there in the chemistry uh, of these, how these building blocks can interact. 
And what the result is that different proteins have completely different shapes. So this is a protein with three coils. So you see there are three strands in different colors coiled around each other. This, you have more of this protein than any other protein in your body because it makes up your skin and your cartilage, your connective tissue, etc. Okay, and it's called collagen. And this is a protein called hemoglobin. And if you look here, there are these little red blobs which are iron atoms in, in these uh, gray things called hemes. And what the iron atoms do is bind oxygen. So this is the protein that carries oxygen from our lungs through our blood into our tissues. In fact, your red blood cells are nothing but bags of hemoglobin, effectively. And this is a protein without which you wouldn't be able to see anything. This is called rhodopsin, and it sits in the membrane of your eyes, of cells in your eyes, and detects light. And when it detects light, it sends a cascade of signals which gets transmitted to the brain. That's how the brain de determines that, oh, at this point in the retina, light was detected, and also of a certain color. You know. So, so it's um, just to illustrate, they come in different shapes and carry out completely different things, and you have thousands of them all doing unique things like antibodies or proteins. You, know, you, you, you can feel pain because of a protein, uh, all sorts of things. So how are proteins made? Well, they're made using information in our genes. And we now know, of course, that genes reside on DNA. In fact, sections of DNA represent genes. So each section, a particular section of DNA, contains information on how to make a particular protein. And the field got a big start when the structure of DNA was uh, solved and shown to be a double helix. And DNA is a polymer with four types of building blocks. Remember, proteins are chains with 20 types of building blocks. So it's a bit like going from a f sentence, you've got to translate a sentence written in a four-letter alphabet into a sentence written in a 20-letter alphabet, a totally different language. That's why the process is called translation. And the way that works is that DNA has all of the genes that you have. You know, your, your collection of DNA has essentially all of the genes you have, thousands of them. Now, if I were to go to the British Library and say, I want to, I want to read this book published in the 1700s, they're not going to let me check out the book. They're going to say, we'll give you a copy of the book, a digital copy of the book, and you go read the digital copy. Well, the cell does something similar. It has the entire archive of our genes stored in the cell nucleus as DNA, which is in our chromosomes. And then, as it needs different genes to be made into proteins, it makes a copy of those sections of DNA. And that's a, a molecule called messenger RNA, and there's each one RNA for each of the genes. So anytime it needs a gene, it makes um, you know, that particular RNA. But this is still in a four-letter alphabet, and somehow it has to be read and, and, and made into a protein, you know, which is a 20-letter alphabet polymer, totally different kind of polymer. And this is the one that folds up and actually carries out uh, function. So how does that happen? How do you get from a four-letter alphabet to a 20-letter alphabet? Well, the way to do that is to read the, this 
as units of three at a time, and this unit of three is called a codon because it's like the genetic code, and it's sort of it's the, it's the unit of the code. And there are molecules in the cell which actually either this is uh, hmm. okay. There we go. There's a molecule in this molecules in the cell where it'll bring along a particular amino acid, which is a building block of the protein, and at the other end, it'll read the code. And then the next part of the code will be read by another uh, similar molecule, but brings in a different amino acid and so on. Now, this seems amazingly complicated, and, and in fact, it is. Uh, and the, the, it doesn't happen by itself, because what cell biologists found was that actually there were these little blobs in the cell that they found when looking at cells in an electron microscope. They found these little blobs, and that is where proteins were made. They knew newly made proteins uh, were in these blobs. And they would isolate them, and they all turned out to have uh, these particles which looked like they had two pieces, a large and a small piece. They're called large and small subunits. Uh, and they were isolated from a fraction called a microsome. And when they analyzed them, they found out they had lots of RNA, which is ribonucleic acid, and they also had proteins. They were made up of proteins, too. So they were called the ribonucleoprotein particles of the microsomal fraction. And of course, if you wanted to say this every time you wanted to refer to it, it's just quite a mouthful. So somebody named Howard Dinses said in the 50s, look, stop, let's just call it the ribosome. And that's the name that's uh, stuck ever since. So how does it, all, so this is to show you how complicated the ribosome is. It makes proteins, but itself has about 80 proteins or more, even more in humans. This is in bacteria. And it's about two-thirds RNA. And that all of this, this number, you know, these large 80 particle components come together into these two subunits which make up the ribosome. And the way it works is, the small subunit binds the genetic message, and it has slots for those uh, molecules, which I, I call adapter molecules, which bring along the amino acids. It has to figure out where to start, and then uh, it chooses amino these, these molecules based on whether they match the code or not. And that's how it knows exactly which amino acid to incorporate, because if it doesn't match the code, it won't accept this molecule. But if it accepts it, then it'll join the first and second amino acid and move along, and then a third one will come in. And if it's the right one, then it'll join the second and third. So you see what it's doing? It's reading the code, only accepting the right molecules that correspond to the code, and therefore stitching together the protein that's specified by the code. So it's an amazing translating machine. And in normal terms, it's extremely small. There are 20,000 of them in the width of a human hair. But in molecular terms, it's enormous. It has half a million atoms. And so if you wanted to understand how it worked, you needed to know what it looked like. And that really was the big quest. <laughs> so you're all now ready to take first-year biology exams. <laughs> There'll be a test after. <laughs> wow. All right. Thank you. For that. I hope you... 
all realize how amazing this is to have a crash course in cellular and molecular biology from a Nobel Prize winner. So that's worth the price of admission. And you'll get more if you read The Gene Machine, of course. Okay, so you won your prize for figuring out the structure of that ribosome. Your book is about the race to figure that out. It's a race that took, part in, uh, it took place over a few decades and in many places. Can you give us a taste of what that was like? Yeah, so, you know, the ribosomes were discovered in the 50s. And, uh, you know, one of the people who, whose lab did a lot of the early work on ribosomes was actually Jim Watson. And he said, you know, when he found out that there were about 50 proteins, well, actually there were about 80, but he thought there were 50, he figured the, stru nobody, the structure would be impossible. It would be impossible to figure out in detail what it looked like. And, but luckily, you know, people didn't stop. They started figuring out how the ribosome roughly worked, what the players were, what, you know, uh, proteins that helped the ribosome along and which subunit did what and so on. What they couldn't figure out was how it did these things in detail. It's a bit like figuring out how a car works without ever being able to look at a car and seeing how it's put together. So the, the, there's a technique to visualize molecules called X-ray crystallography. And this was discovered actually by a graduate student named Lawrence Bragg. And he became the youngest ever Nobel laureate uh, and still is the youngest science Nobel laureate. He got the prize at the age of 25 for work he did as a PhD student. And this technique allowed, because you can't use a microscope to look at uh, something as small as a ribosome, looking at molecular structure. Uh, so what, what he did was to show that you could shine a beam of X-rays at a crystal, which is basically where you've coaxed your molecules to form a regular three-dimensional stack. And when you do that, you can collect the, the scattered rays from the crystal and analyze the X-ray data and then figure out you know, what the structure is. And about 40 or 50 years later, um, one of his protégés, Max Perutz, who started the lab where I work, figured out how to do this for larger molecules like hemoglobin, uh, which is what he solved and got the Nobel Prize for. And, but then, you know, people didn't know whether something as large as a ribosome could actually be crystallized. And what's the problem? Well, if you have a small molecule, any school child can crystallize it, like common salt or sugar. You just dissolve, make a solution, and let it dry out, and you'll get crystals, okay? But if you have a large molecule, which consists of half a million atoms, then it's very hard to coax it to form regular rays so they all stack up in exactly the same orientation, which is what you need. And a breakthrough was achieved when two people in Germany, an Israeli scientist named Ada Yonat and a German who was a director of a ribosome institute named Heinz Gunther Wittmann, decided to tackle this problem. And Ada Yonat, who went to this institute, Wittmann's institute, and uh, she started, you know, working on this, and with her team and with Wittmann, they were able to get initial crystals of, you know, the large subunit of the ribosome. Now, a few years later, uh, another uh, woman scientist named Marina uh, Garber, she 
was running a lab in, in Russia in a town called Pushchino, which is sort of a science city, you know, one of these Soviet science cities uh, outside Moscow. And her group crystallized both the small subunit and the entire ribosome. So now we had crystals of the small subunit, of the large subunit, and of the whole ribosome. The problem is these crystals weren't good enough to get an atomic structure. What that means is that the molecules were not sitting in exactly the same orientation, but they were all slightly off from one molecule to the next in the crystal. So when you did the x-ray analysis, you'd get an average, so you'd get a blurry picture instead of a detailed picture. And so uh, you had to somehow figure out how to improve these crystals. So Ada Yonat worked on the large subunit and got improved crystals of the large subunit. And that was around 1990. And, but then, you know, years passed and there was no real progress towards even a fuzzy picture of the ribosome, let alone a, a really detailed atomic picture of the ribosome. And I describe in the book how, you know, there were two meetings, one in uh, Victoria, in, in, uh, in uh, Canada, and the other in uh, Seattle. So actually, both of them were in the northwest of uh, North America, anyway, by coincidence. But they were in 1995 and 1996. And at these two meetings, after talks that Ada Yonat gave, uh, the feeling was that she was stuck and, and really, you know, uh, had no idea uh, how to go forward. Uh, because she'd had these crystals and nothing was happening. And a number of people thought, well, look, maybe the field needs new ideas. Certainly it's not going to get done otherwise. And so about three other groups, without telling each other, uh, entered the field. Now, the group at Yale, including my postdoctoral mentor, uh, who, Peter Moore, who collaborated with Tom Stites, with whom I shared the prize, they, they said, well, let's take Ada's good crystals and see what we can do with them. So they started working on the 50S subunit. I thought, well, I didn't want to work on these crystals that she had developed. I thought maybe, you know, people would look kind of, you know, at me funny that way. And so I thought, well, I'll work on the small subunit because nobody's working on it, you know. But what happened is after a year, the Yale group started making progress. And Ada Yonat abandoned the large subunit and switched her attention to the small subunit. So instead of my having a little quiet niche, I found I was in this head-to-head -head race with Ada Yonat, who had, by the way, she had two labs, one in Hamburg and one in Israel, and a third lab in Berlin that was providing her all the ribosomes. So she had like 20, 25 people, uh, if you spread out over three labs. And I had two first-year graduate students at Utah, you know, so Luckily, neither of them knew anything about crystallography or ribosomes, so they thought it was a great idea, you know, to compete. <laughs> but anyway, so that's how it got started. And, um, and then a famous ribosome biochemist named Harry Noller in California hired two of the Russians who had crystallized, you know, the other parts of the ribosome, including the whole ribosome. And so he started working on the whole ribosome. So suddenly it became kind of four-way race. And, you know, I had, by that time, decided to shut down everything else in my lab. Half my lab was working on chromatin. I completely shut it down. And I also decided to take a big pay cut and move to Cambridge in England to, to work on this, because I didn't know how long it would take. And I went to a lab that's famous for tolerating 
people for a long time working on hard problems for a long time. And so, uh, so you know, I thought, well, you know, uh, I thought I was going to have this quiet niche, and I have this four-way race, plus I'm going to this place, and I hope I don't go there and make a complete fool of myself. So it was pretty stressful. <laughs> so this race... And again, in the Gene Machine, um, Venki tells the story very well and very frankly as well. So you get a, a real insight into how this research was done. What was it like writing in that style, so frankly? It was a little hard. And um, I think, you know, I wanted, my model actually was uh, the double helix, you know, by Jim Watson. Because before the, you know, whatever we may think of Jim Watson, and we all have our views, I'm sure. I might ask you that later. We'll see if we have time. <laughs> but whatever we may think of Jim Watson as a person, the, his book was really amazing for a very important reason. Until then, science books were all whitewashed, okay? They were all, in hindsight, everything was just wonderful. It all worked out, and there was this noble search for the you know, truth, etc., and his was the first book that actually told people what it's like to do science. You know, science is done by people. And we're motivated by all kinds of complex reasons, you know, curiosity, desire to know the truth, all this stuff. But also, you know, a desire to be there first, you know, and, and to compete and, you know, uh, there's jealousy and rivalry. All of that is part of science. And uh, uh, altruism is also part of science. Lots of people help me with not, no expectation of anything in return. They gave me reagents I couldn't buy that they had made. And, uh, you know, never asked me for money or for co-authorship or anything, you know. So, so you see the best and worst of science, uh, of, of people in science. So I'd say science is just a microcosm of humanity. So uh, I would say, you know, writing the book, I wanted to bring that out. And... Um, but, you know, I didn't want to be gratuitously uh, insulting. I wanted to be critical and frank. And I, if I wanted to be completely honest about other people, I felt I should also be equally honest about myself. And, and, and you, have to give, so you have to give Jim Watson credit for being equally honest about himself. He doesn't come across as a nice guy in that book. You know, he comes across <laughs> as a, a real jerk, okay? And, and so, you know, he was being honest. So I wanted to be honest, but I didn't want to be gratuitously nasty, okay? And I th hope I've hit the balance just right. Uh, one thing I can say is that Richard Dawkins, who reviewed the book, says you can think of Venki as a nice Jim Watson. So I think that's, that's sort of where I want to end up. <laughs> and do you like that comparison? I, well, let's not go there, you know. <laughs> I, mean, well, Jim, I think, you know, Jim has been, uh, you know, he's been, a, he was a, he's a great scientist who's been right uh, an incredible number of times, but when other people have, uh, you know, been wrong. And, and that has gone to his head. And so he has, you know, developed these views which I think are, are really obnoxious. Uh, you know, about race and gender and eugenics and all sorts of things. And I think, you know, it's, I guess, you know, if you're at that, you know, if, you're, if you've done your greatest work at, at the age of 25, you win the Nobel Prize, you know, 62, he was probably about, uh, what was that, 10 years, 9 years later. He was only in his 30s when he won the Nobel Prize, you know, 35 or so. It must have gone to his head. 
you know, all that success. And I, I think, you know, it's one of those things. So in your book, was have your colleagues who are uh, written about in the book, uh, have many of them read it? Do you know their reaction? Did anybody get offended? I mean, don't look for offense. It's not an offensive <laughs> book, by the way. But if you're well, one of the characters. Well, it's, it's very, very frank and very oh. pointed. And I could imagine one or two people uh, who wouldn't be uh, particularly happy with passages in the book. Um, but um, many people have read it, including my mentor, Peter Moore, mm -hmm. about how I'm, uh, and I'm equally frank about him, uh, including saying why, you know, he probably, it was okay that he was left out of the Nobel Prize. You know, I mean, I'm, in analyzing uh, why they would not choose him among the three people. So I was very, very frank. And he actually enjoyed the book a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Tom Stites, unfortunately, was in advanced stages of cancer uh, when he got my uh, sort of proofs of the book. And so he, he, because he was all, you know, under chemo, chemotherapy and painkillers, he couldn't really read it. But his wife, who's a very famous molecular biologist, read it, and she liked it. So a number of people have liked it. Uh, but I haven't sent it to one person, Harry Noller in particular, um, partly because we're not that close, and I've been very frank about him. But I figure if he wants, he can write his own book. Yep, and you'll learn more about all of these characters when you read the book. And they're all very fascinating people, and I think it does give a great insight into how this work happens. And I have one question about that for you. I'm mindful, we're gonna, I'm going to ask a few more questions and then open it up to all of you uh, in a few minutes. But one thing I was really uh, thinking about as I was reading the book, I mean, this is about a race. It's about your race, your view of the race. And, you know, I can sense on a lot of those pages the worry, the anxiety that you must have been feeling when this was going on, and probably your colleagues as well. So how anxious were you during this race, and did that terrible. affect you? How did you channel that? Uh, it was really terrible, and uh, what happened is that, first of all, you know, I went to this meeting in Sweden and found out that Ada Jonat was now going to work on the same subunit that I was going to work on. And on the plane ride back to Utah, and I'd already talked to people in Cambridge about the possibility of moving there. But on the plane ride, I thought, my God, you know, should I really even continue? Uh, but then I thought, look, crystals have been around for a long time, and she hasn't really made progress. So if she has crystals of this thing, why, why should I suddenly give up, you know? And also I thought, if I didn't do it, and I watched other people do it, I would just regret it for the rest of my life. But if I gave it a good shot and I failed, I could say, well, at least I tried. You know, and, and so I, I, I decided to go back and it was full steam ahead. Then we made rapid progress up to a point, and then we, we actually made an initial breakthrough even before moving to Cambridge. But then when we got to Cambridge, we were completely stuck uh, because of these crystals would die very quickly when you hit them hard with x-rays. And I explain what dying means. It means that they become disordered due to damage from x-rays, so you can't collect your data. And there are ways around it. And one of the ways, there's a very particular passage in the book, one of the ways is to go to a particular instrument at a powerful x-ray source near Chicago. These are particle accelerators called synchrotrons, which emit very intense beams of x-rays. And they had an instrument that I, that I needed. And so I wrote to the guy in October saying, look, 
or a stock. And by that time, we had already published our big breakthrough paper. So we had some credibility. It's not like we were nobody at the time. And he didn't reply to me. Then, he, then I wrote him a month later, and he replied saying, yeah, we'll give you some time, but it won't be until early next year. And I'm, I'm busy now, but I'll get back to you. December came, no reply. January came, no reply. By this time, the Yale group had used his beamline. They'd gotten really good data, and that cracked their problem. And Ada Yonat, I knew, was using his beamline regularly, okay? And I was being shut out. And so I wrote to my mentor at Yale, and I said, look, we, I want to use this beamline, but I can't get this guy to give me any time on it. And can you talk to your colleague, Paul Sigler, who happened to be on the committee that oversaw that beamline? So, and moreover, the beamline was run by his former protege. So, I, so, so my mentor, Peter, said, I'll talk to Paul tomorrow and uh, let you know. And then the next day he wrote, he said, I've talked to Paul and he's going to call those guys and uh, you'll hear from us. Then the next day he writes, Paul has talked to those guys and you should be hearing from them. Then the next day, I get, I get an email from this guy at the Beamline saying, oh, I'm really sorry I haven't replied, I've been awfully busy, but you know, I finally got around to your thing. And uh, uh, yes, you can have some time in March, at the end of March. Now this was early January. So that's another three months, you know? So it's six months after I first wrote to him in a tight race, okay? And I say in the book, this tells you a lot of things. One is, if you were an outsider, you would have no hope, you know? That, that guy wouldn't even, you know, he might not even have, uh, listen to your thing. He might have just put it away or done whatever. And you know, I knew somebody who knew somebody who could talk to the person. So it's this, and I also knew which beamline to use. You know, that's all part of being the inner circle. So, you know, science is very clicky. You know, if you're in, on, in the inside group, you get to know things, you get to know people, and so on. If you're outside, it's really hard to sort of craw, claw your way in. And part of the story is how I clawed my way in, because I went to no-name schools initially. You know, I didn't go, I was not a fast track, you know, uh, Harvard, Berkeley type, you know, who, uh, you know, knew everybody right from the start. I, I went to, you know, second or third tier institutions for uh, much of the early part of my life. So I will ask one more question before we open it up. Uh, and that is, you write very fondly in your book about the people that have worked with you. It seems like you've been very fortunate to have a really incredible group of graduate students and of postdocs that have along with you done a lot of this work. They don't always get the credit, and certainly they can't all get a Nobel Prize. Uh, that team also is a, seems to be a very diverse team, especially in terms of, of nationalities. So do you have any words about your team, and do you have any words about that sort of team, the importance of those teams, and yeah. keeping in mind, uh, maybe many of you have seen over the last few days, Venki quoted quite a bit in the press with the Prime Minister's new ideas about visas for scientists, how those kind of teams uh, might work in the future or not as Brexit and other things happen. Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the nationality can... It, I'm a little agnostic about it, you know? I think, you, you know, for example, the breakthrough was made in Utah by an entirely American team, okay? Um, you could say, you know, it was diverse in other ways, like I had 
grown up in India, although I was uh, American uh, for decades by that time. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I had an African-American who, uh, who's actually the nephew of Clarence Clemens, who works, was a saxophonist for Bruce Springsteen. You, know, yeah. so. <laughs> you can learn all about him in Bruce Springsteen's uh, autobiography, which is one of my favorite books. So, of the last so years. anyway, you know, and now his brother is a saxophonist. So, so he came from a very distinguished musical family. But he was the first guy in his family to, to, to go into science. And so, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, how much diversity uh, per se is important, but I think it's important because you, you need to select from the largest possible pool to bring people with different attitudes and enthusiasm. Now, one way diversity can help is people bring in different attitudes. You know, if they come from, I had a postdoc from Denmark, uh, I had another postdoc uh, from Sweden, uh, I have people from the US, I have people from uh, India, I've, uh, you know, so I've, my lab is, tends to be fairly international. And they tend to bring in slightly different attitudes uh, to science. And so that m creates a sort of interesting mix. It's also fun, you know, to have people from different parts of the world all sort of talking to each other and, you know, engaging and learning about each other and so on. So it creates a sort of nice uh, mix. Now, I think, you know, if countries shut themselves off, they will, in some sense, uh, pay, a, pay a penalty for that. I think Britain has succeeded uh, because it's been a very open society. Uh, it's second only to the U.S. as an international destination for science. And I think if Britain uh, raises barriers to people coming here, uh, British science will suffer because we won't be selecting from the best and most appropriate people in the world. We'll be looking from a much smaller pool, and that's always a, a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. I mean, one classic reason, for example, for gender diversity. You know, why would you want to cut off 50% of the population and choose only from, you know, 50%? You, you're, you'd be shooting yourself in the foot. You know, if you double your, uh, your pool of people, you're going to, you know, get, on average, you're going to get better people. So I think that there's a very pragmatic, completely apart from the reason of fairness, which is, of course, uh, the most important. Yeah, and I think those are some very wise words, and I think it's very, you know, fun to have this conversation, the two of us, two uh, foreign-born scientists who have come to the UK here on this stage, and I think, I hope we all can feel that that continues. So uh, with that, um, I'd like to open it up for questions. So we have about 15 minutes. I know we probably can't get to everybody, but of course, we'll be doing a book signing just down George Street right when this is done. So don't worry if you're not able to get a question. So do we have, we have microphones? All right, I'll go right over there first, man. Um, I wonder if you think a biological computer will be developed or, you know. Sorry? I wonder if you think there's an opportunity to develop a biological computer. Opportunity for, sorry, I didn't, couldn't quite... To develop a biological computer. Oh, a biological computer. I, I'm, I don't know enough about it. There are people who uh, feel that DNA can be used as a computer uh, because it stores information and can transfer information and so on. Uh, but I don't know enough about whether you can use bio 
you know, biology to develop computers. I'm sorry. If, if you can, I would say it's in quite the distant future. It's not something that's immediate. Yep, we'll go right here. <laughs> Thank you. This is my first lecture by a Nobel laureate. So I'm sure myself and others are very thrilled. As president of the Royal Society, how will you use your post to advocate for evidence-based science to help combat the voices from politics, including the White House and Westminster, who oppose things such as vaccines, yeah. who oppose things such as evidence-based information regarding climate change? How will you become an effective advocate for the future of science? Yeah, I, this is a very, very tough problem, and it is a problem because the way we receive information has completely changed. The way young people especially receive information is not through a few trusted, vetted outlets. Uh, in fact, they receive them through social media, which actively promotes a distrust of what they call mainstream media. You know, they refer to mainstream media as fake news and, you know, this, that, and the other. So, by, so it's a very, very hard problem. And it's not clear what we can do except to be constantly engaging with the public. I think the scientists no longer can afford to uh, sit in their ivory tower and think everything is going to be okay. This doesn't mean every single scientist has to stop doing their lab work and go off and uh, publicize because most of them aren't, you know, don't even have the aptitude for that. But those people, scientists who are capable of taking stories to the public, uh, really should be encouraged to do that. And the, the Royal Society is playing its role in public engagement, but there are others like the Royal Institution, you know, there's the Royal Society of Edinburgh here. So I think, you know, there are a lot of in organizations that are encouraging more outreach with the public. Mm -hmm. And in the US, I'm sorry to say, you know, when Trump, um, there was a recent issue about visas and so on, and oh no, I know, I know what it was. It's, it's about the treatment of Chinese scientists in the US. And I have to say, I issued a statement, you know, I wrote a letter to Nature, but the National Academy you know, didn't speak up strongly. And that's, you know, I, I would say a problem. You know, the, the academies within each country really need to be strong. Okay, we'll take one here. Hiya. Um, I'd love to know um, which question, which outstanding question in gene science would you love to know the answer to the most right now? In, in gene science, well, you know, Feynman was asked, you know, what do you think is the next big question? And he says, if I knew that, I'd be working on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, you know, I haven't thought too much, very, too, too much very broadly. But, you know, the big questions in biology still remain. You know, for example, the question in genetics is really development. How, do, how, how does you know, a single cell contain the program to develop an animal? How does specialization occur? What, what is the sort of orchestration of genes? How do genes get turned off and 
uh, turned on and off at different stages and in response to different environmental cues. That is, you know, the grand question, you know, that still remains. Um, you know, you all know about Dolly the sheep, uh, and that's not far from Edinburgh, but uh, that is a particular case of taking a particular cell, like a skin cell, and fooling it into thinking it's starting all over again and then growing into a new animal, okay? But that's a particular example. Now, there, there are ways to try and do it with taking any one cell type and converting it to a completely different cell type, okay? So that's a, a, another interesting area in, in the, uh, broadly in the area of genes and, and their expression. And Stella, you have one? Yep. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist, so I work with mental health. So what I'm concerned about is um, people's happiness, so rather than success itself, because being successful doesn't always make you happy. So you mentioned lots of things about this keen competition, talking about the difficulties around human relationships in advancing science and stuff like that. So in your opinion, what kind of mentalities help a scientist or anybody to cope with this kind of pressure and to be able to sail through these challenges with reasonable, reasonably good mental health and well-being? Uh, I can't speak generally, but I can tell you what worked for me. And what worked for me was spending regular time away from work. You know, for example, my wife and I like to go hiking. Uh, I like music. I like reading. Uh, I even started taking Spanish. You know, I took, I passed my GCSEs and A-levels during all of this, you know, stuff. And, and so uh, having some other thing that takes you away from work, even just going for a walk. People say going for a walk is amazingly therapeutic. So, um, you know, that's, that's the thing to do. And I never, uh, you know, I don't know if there are any, I, I know there's at least one faculty member here, but there may be others, and, and they may not like what I'm saying, but I never, uh, I'm not one of these guys who works all the time, okay? I like to have weekends, you know, to, when I do something else, and I, if my lab does that, it's perfectly fine with me, you know, and I find that I don't find that they're less productive uh, because they take their weekends off and don't work all the time. All right, let's take one from this side all the way over here. Yeah, we'll do both of your questions. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, you mentioned competition quite a lot. And obviously that pushes scientific breakthrough and is very important. But I was wondering if you thought that maybe academia should change its culture a little bit and be more open and more collaborative and if perhaps competition sometimes makes pr progress slower because people will do the same experiments and fail at the same things but they yeah. will perhaps hide it from each other. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh you need both. I don't agree that co uh, competition slows things down, by the way. If anything, it makes it faster. It's wasteful, but it's, it's faster. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, in the ribosome case, when there was only one group working on it, things were sort of chugging along for 15 years, okay? And, uh, you know, the, the real breakthrough 
was not made. As soon as three other groups entered the field, you know, all hell broke loose in about a year or two. And, you know, suddenly everything started happening. So I, I think competition forces you to work harder, to think harder, you know, to uh, be more creative and so on. So, so it brings out certain elements which drive forward success. And it's the same in business, okay, or any other field of human endeavor. If you didn't have competition, people wouldn't, you know, uh, give it their all. So that's one aspect. Now, there are other things where you can't have competition. For example, nobody's going to build you your own CERN to discover your own Higgs boson, okay? So there you have to have thousands of people collaborate. Somebody may, some teams make the detector, others make the accelerator, others figure out how to collect the data and what, what it all means and so on. So there, you know, thousands of people had to come together. Or the gravitational wave experiment. You know, lots of people had to uh, collaborate in order to uh, get that to work. And even the first human genome sequence, you know, was a lot international collaboration. Because at the time, sequencing was not cheap and it was not uh, so fast. And so there was no point in people trying to replicate each other. But even there, I would say, the entry of this guy, Maverick, Craig Venter, really sort of gave the field a kick, okay? It was chugging along. Suddenly this Maverick says, I'm going to sequence it all and make it all private and so on. And suddenly the, the Human Genome Consortium said, no, we're not going to let this guy get away with it. And they started working really hard. And, and then things just happened very fast. So I would say um, you need both in science, and, but you shouldn't undervalue the effect of collaboration. But what I do say is collaboration is great for science, but it's terrible for scientists, okay, because it's extremely stressful and, yeah. <laughs> And sir, we'll take yours. Just thinking back to the um, uh, people at the start of uh, a scientific career, do you have any views or concerns about grade inflation? About what? Grade inflation. You know, when I was at the Cavendish in the 1970s, four out of 80 or 90 part two physics students got firsts. Now I think it's about 25 or 30 percent. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> well, maybe, we're, it's, maybe it's we were really, very dumb. You know, this, of course, this is a sort of loaded question. Uh, I think it really question, it's really a question of what are you trying to measure when you uh, give an exam. And so if in an exam you're trying to measure competence, okay, that's one thing. If you're trying to sort of stretch somebody and say, okay, how clever can they be in a three-hour time slot? You know, that's a different thing, okay? And I will tell you one thing that often people, so, you know, I, I believe Crick did not get a first, and he's probably the greatest molecular biologist in certainly uh, 20th century Britain, okay? And he didn't get a first. I think he got a 2-1. And so... I'm not sure that being very clever in doing exam questions in a three-hour time slot is a, a real indication of how, not only how successful you'll be, but actually even how creative you'll be, you know, as a scientist. So, so we, if, if we're simply using exams to measure competence, then we should sort of design it around that, and then, you know, it's really... You know, anybody above a certain level is fine, they're competent. And to figure out who's really creative and who's going to be really good, 
it's not so easy. You have to give them a, a shot at doing something unknown and see, see what they're like. So now one of the recurring bits of humor in the gene machine is it seems like every conference you go to, Ada Yonat, the Israeli um, crystallographer, would always go on and on well over the uh, allotted time. And I want to be sure that we don't. Uh, we have a couple extra minutes because of the late start. So I think we have time for one more question, and then we can take it down to the book signing. So your hand is raised proudly, so you can shout it out maybe if the mic doesn't come. Thank you. I, I have an 18-year-old son who's about to start doing a degree in biomolecular science in a few weeks' time. And I just wonder what words of wisdom you might like to impart for someone or anyone like him who's entering life scientific at this stage. I would say to get as broad an education uh, as possible. And that if you're doing biological sciences these days, it would be good to have a, a solid foundation in chemistry, and in mathematics, and, and possibly in physics. And uh, that way, uh, you'll, you'll be very broadly prepared uh, for whatever direction you want to go in life sciences. You know, even if you're in genetics now, it's become highly computational. And, you know, if you want to understand it, rather than simply turn the crank and use somebody else's uh, algorithm, you need to understand the mathematics and statistics behind it and so on. So I, I, the, my view is to, to be broad initially before you uh, narrow down uh, later. All right. Well, let's uh, thank Sir Venki Ramakrishnan for a very engaging hour. <laughs> And I hope you're all going to pick up this book. We have plenty of copies for sale down in the bookshop at the end of George Street here. We will be going there now. So I hope to see many of you there. And of course, you can meet Venki personally. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at EdBookFest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.